0: Pretty sure I saw Elon Musk (laughs) when I was driving. Um, It was really just a Tesla that said SpaceX on the license plate. So either it's Elon Musk or somebody who wants to ride his dick. I would say that's a sure bet either way.
1: Because <laughs> um, I think Elon Musk also run, wants to ride his own dick. Oh, yeah. Um, you're right. So they're one and the same, really.
0: <laughs> I honestly tried to catch up with him, too, on I 95 North, <laughs> and he was going so fast.
1: <laughs> well, that's how you know it was him, because he was driving fast. Because I'm sure that guy drives like a maniac. At because, the speed of light? Yeah, if he like gets pulled over, he's probably just like, here's a million dollars. And I'm like,
0: oh, thanks. He's like, I have on my anti gravity suit. suit. <laughs> I didn't know if I
1: was going, because I I thought we were going in a light (laughs) (laughs)
0: year. Teslas aren't set at miles per hour. (laughs) Elon,
1: your baby's in the backseat. What are you doing? He's fine.
0: (laughs) Yep, that's what happened. Okay,
1: (laughs) you heard it here first. Elon Musk is in
0: Baltimore. Everybody flock. (laughs) He was probably in DC traveling. to Uh, new york we're just a middle ground probably um but we're not not here to talk about that no we're not here about an elon musk (laughs)
1: we're here to talk about story. (laughs) on the rocks with katie and
0: Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because oh women have nuance
1: but keep in mind we're drinking the entire time.
0: And we've already started <laughs> drinking about an hour ago. Oh, yeah.
1: So we're on second cocktail, and we're going to have a third in a little bit. Uh-huh. So beware.
0: And we're not historians. <laughs> That's b- the second thing. But yes. we do our best. <laughs> we do our best to bring it to you accurately and correctly, or at least with sources, and then we welcome your email corrections. Absolutely. Because we have to put this together in a week
1: on top of our jobs. Um, So... <laughs> I get really worried that we're like, why didn't you use this source? I'm like, I didn't know it existed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I tried. I
1: tried really hard.
0: (laughs) It wasn't on the first O in the Google search. (laughs) I had to click two O's over and that was a problem. Um, I
1: clicked O's over for my research this week.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah. That's fancy.
1: I was on some random woman's blog about her trip to Thailand that's how deep it went wow (laughs) it's not the blog (laughs) I'm going to reference because there's a different blog I went on about um, who's that was written by an actual Thai woman about the history and I was like okay cool that's like a real valid source
0: the other one wow. I was like wow that's cool <laughs> well by now our people on patron have who decided they wanted to be a part of the secret sandra day o'connor gift exchange have gotten their people what? so just read the little rules on patron and then post your gift when you're ready and we got a new patron this week luna welcome luna <sighs> I'm hoping love good, but <laughs> <laughs> but if not, that's fine too. That's if you're totally not fine. the fictional character,
1: <laughs> we love you anyways.
0: Um, but you're all busy.
1: You're so busy.
0: <laughs> you're busy outside with
1: fall spring. I love fall spring. Oh, it's just it's the best time in Baltimore when the weather just creeps above forty degrees and everybody puts on their cool and runs outside. And then is does cartwheels. Like, Oh, my God.
0: It's still winter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But you're doing cartwheels through your backyard during fall, spring. In your culottes. And therefore, (laughs) you can't look up what these women look like.
1: You're going to get grass stains all over your phone. It'll be terrible. (laughs) So we're going to describe what these women look like so you can get a picture in your head while you're somersaulting and listening to their stories. We're going to get a little Physical, physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like?
0: Well, today I'm covering a full court case of women uh, involved in Madrigal v. Quilligan. And uh, the case is named after Dolores Madrigal, but involved 10 Latinx women in their mid-20s and 30s living in LA during the 1970s. And the 10 women were part of a case that really involved thousands of women that weren't on the stand because they weren't ready to go public with this information every woman looks a little bit different but in general they were of mexican descent or chicana and um they were in their early to mid childbearing years one thing's important though they were visibly mexican either by styling or their ethnicity because that would have been the root cause of discrimination against them um so just think a large population of U.S. female Hispanic women living in L.A. in the nineteen seventies. Okay.
1: Um, so it'll be a
0: journey. <laughs> yes,
1: it sounds like. It. <laughs> um, I am doing uh, Her Highness Princess Dara Rashmi. Um, she had a long, slim figure, a long oval face with smooth skin. Uh, dark kind of short eyebrows which sit over dark kind of downturned eyes Uh, full chick full cheeks and full um, downturned lips did I say dark turned I meant downturned I think you had it right yeah (laughs) like all of her features kind of like go downwards Um, and uh, during her time as the princess consort of Siam she was well known for having extremely long hair um, typically pulled up and back into a bun Um, But there are a lot of photos of her with her hair down, and we'll see why. Um, And she is wearing a Fasin, very particular type of northern Thai dress. Uh, And that is what Dara
0: Rashmi looked like. Well, that's great, because I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) know who that person is so i'm excited <laughs> excited to learn great do you know want to know what you're about to drink? i do
1: it looks delicious
0: so i took um a cocktail that is served or a shot that's okay. typically served called a hot chicana and i changed it to chicana justice Ooh, i love that and it is a half an ounce of rum a half an ounce of cinnamon liqueur i used gold slugger but mm-hmm. you can use hot damn or fireball mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whatever's the cheapest at your local liquor store i used a drop of hot sauce in each and then put in a full length thin cinnamon stick this mm-hmm. is a champagne flute and topped it with cinnamon and what you can see is that the champagne keeps cycling through the cinnamon stick it's so cool and like bringing bubbles up to the top Ooh. isn't it neat it's awesome all right let's, let's see cheer. cheers
1: Mm, I feel like I'm eating
0: a Red Hot. It tastes exactly (laughs)
1: like that. And it
0: looks like a Red Hot because I got like rosé champagne, like bubbly. Wow.
1: I love it. Mm. Not my favorite candy growing up, but I have a much better appreciation for them now.
0: Yeah, I don't even think I'd now sit around and pop them. Like, some people love them, but I oh. do enjoy one mm-hmm. now and again.
1: Yeah, if it's in the candy dish, I won't avoid it.
0: Right. It's <laughs> not, I'm not, like, picking around it like the bananas and runs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, the
1: bananas are the worst.
0: <laughs> God. Whoo! <whew. laughs> there we go. All right. What do you know about the court case, Madrigal v. Quilligan? I
1: don't know anything. I mean, it sounds like these women were probably poorly treated and deserve justice. I hope they got it. I don't know. So I'm going to be on pins and needles waiting to find out if, like— they were okay because you said it was a class action lawsuit yeah so it's like there are like what 10 women in the courtroom but then they're representing so many more women right multiple Um, multiple women okay so yeah I really I don't know anything about this so I'm really interested to learn okay probably sad about it. Yeah
0: you you probably <laughs> will be. So this was a request from the ladies at hashtag history. So ah. Rachel and Leah our sister podcast in California were the whistleblowers to this California story that we need to tell. <laughs> the <whistleblowers. laughs> They're letting us know. Um, so my sources. is there's a documentary called No Mas Babes or No More Babies. Uh, there is a really cool YouTube video called Sterilization Final Chapter. Many many articles. And then there's another documentary that's not totally directly related to this, but it is called "Belly of the Beast: California's Dark History of Forced Sterilization," and that one is about Black Latina and Indigenous women, primarily in prison, being sterilized without mm. consent. I will say though, "No Más Bebés" and "Belly of the Beast," they were put out by. Like PBS, but if you click on them on those websites, they've been taken down because these doctors are still alive. So it's seen, you had to get them via like Venmo. Interesting. So it's, this is not cooth, alleged. This is all alleged. Alleged.
1: <laughs> which is fucked because, like, okay, so I was just watching a show where, you know, it's a <laughs> Longmire, which is like a Western <laughs> NCIS and like, it's outrageous, but this most recent episode, like they deal a lot with like the local Cheyenne people, and like uh, this murder was like of this doctor's sons, and it turned out to be this you know, like Native woman who was like, I just like she was like, I just found out two years ago that the reason I've never been able to have children is because I was sterilized. Hell yeah. She goes, and I had no idea I went in to get my appendix removed, and she was like, I just wanted you know him to feel the pain that I did. You know, it's like, and it's this thing that like. I I think that it's important to, like, represent that in shows because it really does fucking happen. It did happen. Yeah. Like, all sorts of, you know, non-white women and some white women, as we talked about in one of our previous episodes, like, mm-hmm. you know, that were poor or, you know, mentally, you know, uh, intellectually disabled were, yeah, sterilized without their consent. Correct. And it's a wild history that we really need to talk about more because there's a whole generation lost because of what doctors just, Deemed okay.
0: Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because I did put in our notes that we're going to keep covering this over and over again Mm -hmm. as many times as we need to. Because last February, Katie and I did an episode about the involuntary sterilization of black women in this country and the history of medical mistreatment in the U.S. Two novembers ago, we did an episode on the history of missing and murdered indigenous women. Mm -hmm. We have not yet done the forced sterilization of indigenous women, although that is also a problem. So we are continuing this conversation of being um, coerced Mm -hmm. sometimes into sterilization or not even told. Yeah. But this time specifically through one court case. Okay. Perfect. So I'm going to. That's
1: what we got to do. One court case at a time. One at a time. (laughs) Uh,
0: I'm going to jump into a little bit of background. When we hear the term eugenics, we tend to always think about the big bads like Hitler and King Leopold and genocide and ethnic cleansing. And sometimes we forget the little bads, although we don't in this podcast. We cover it every time. People like Theodore Roosevelt, Helen Keller, Alexander Graham Bell, Winston Churchill, Margaret Sanger, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who in big or small ways promoted the idea that certain people or groups either should or should not procreate based on a set of factors mm-hmm. these beliefs most often impact the poor the differently abled and the people of color these beliefs also typically impact people that were seen as a threat to the supremacy of a particular group. So as Katie was saying, in Appalachia, that was poor white women. In the southeast, that was black American women. In the northwest, that was indigenous women. And in the south and southwest, that was Hispanic, Latinx, or um, Chicana people. Just one example of how Latinx women were used in the greater scheme of American progress, or the common good, was in birth control trials. So I wanted to start with a little history because in Puerto Rico, women were used as guinea pigs for unethical clinical trials of the early stages of birth control. Katie covered this when she talked about Margaret Sanger. So... it. It came in a little brown bottle, and these were married women in Puerto Rico that were told that this will help with menstrual disorders, and the bottle was marked safe, uh, but it was a strong formula, and it was given to the poor women there. The women were not told that they were taking part in a trial or about any of the risks. Three women even died during this birth control trial period, but their deaths were not investigated. Later in 1942, a Mexican-American girl named Iris Lopez was 18 years old and working on the U.S. home front during World War II. This should have been a celebrated history. She's one of the Rosie the Riveters. But unfortunately, two years prior to that, when Iris was 16 years old, she was committed to a California institution and sterilized. That's right, a teenager who was willing to patriotically work for her country during wartime was seen as a threat. Iris was not alone. In the 20th century, approximately 20,000 people were sterilized and more, some say 20 to 60,000, were sterilized under US eugenics programs. 32 states allowed Government officials, healthcare workers, and social workers to deem a person unfit to bear children. And California led the effort of eugenics. Between 1920 and 1950, 20,000 people were sterilized in California. That was a third of the nation. So California held a third of those people. California eugenics laws were first passed in 1909, and the idea of science in support of better breeding um, passed all the way through to the middle of the century. Under the law, anyone committed to a state institution could be sterilized. And we know that people of color are more often committed to state institutions and therefore were more often sterilized. Laws were also passed to attempt to keep Mexican populations down by restricting immigration that used vocabulary describing women as hyperfertile. This caused Chicana women to be targeted in California. I'm going to use the term Chicana because in California in the 1950s, 88% of the Latinx population um, that spoke Spanish were of Mexican descent. Obviously, many people were sterilized during these years in California, but Chicana women were sterilized 59% more than other women.
1: And you know what? It's interesting that you said that they were labeled as more fertile because I've heard that said by men in my lifetime. Mm. We have a friend who um, I was talking to one day and he was like, oh yeah, I was really nervous because I like, you know, had sex with this girl and he and she was like, oh, and she's Latin. So like, you know, I was really worried I was going to get her pregnant because, you know, they get pregnant real quick. Like they're like, like super fertile. <laughs> I was like, I was like a teenager when he said this to me and I was like, yeah. What? <laughs> but it's one of those things. It just gets passed down like these stereotypes, and then like it just, yeah, it just gets ingrained. And then for years, I just thought that was true. You know, I was a kid, but like right. you know, I thought it was
0: true. It's in the cultural zeitgeist yeah, of ideas that is. like b- women of Hispanic descent are more fertile and therefore have more kids. Nobody thinks of like you know the cultural aspect, yeah, of it. Mm-hmm. Like because two generations ago, like both of my grandparents are like one of nine. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very white people. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's just like people of different cultures and areas and eras had a different idea of what it meant to have, what, what family planning was. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, this is what was happening to the women in California at, in the 70s. So in the 1970s, when people began um, to become aware of this, this is how it worked. Chicana women would go to the county hospital usually not a private hospital sometimes because they were undocumented sometimes because they had a lack of great health insurance like most people in this country and sometimes because it was the closest hospital Mm -hmm. so remember from um, remember the show called code black. That came out familiar. It was like a hospital show that came out like 2015 to 2016. And it was about like L.A. County hospitals Mm. and how like on weekends they're in code black. Like we have no beds. You're sleeping on the floor if you're in here. This is how it was. People of varying economic statuses were rushed to the hospital for a number of reasons. And it was really it's a highly populated city. So there's a lot of people and a lot of doctors. So a woman would show up in labor, perhaps white, perhaps black, perhaps Chicana, and if there was any complication with the birth, as per the usual, a woman would be rushed into surgical C-section or a cesarean section. At a much higher rate, Chicana women in the midst of labor would be handed a consent form. The consent form would be in English, and they believed the consent form was for the cesarean section. In many cases, that is why they signed it. They're like, okay, I need to have this baby. I want to keep this baby alive. But they were also handed another form with it or like under it or sometimes it was the next line down. And without knowing, they were consenting to tubal ligation or having your tubes cut, burned, tied. We say tube tied. Mm Mm-hmm. They were not made aware of what they signed and in many cases did not know that they were infertile until they and their partner began trying for another baby.
1: Okay, and I'm going to say, too, this is so fucked because I didn't even think about the women who, like, yeah, it was done without their consent, without their knowledge, and then they're years down the line and... We know we've talked about this before. Like, if you're a person trying to get pregnant and it's not working, the blame is almost always on the woman. And you're like, wow, I just am not like woman enough to do this thing that I'm like literally like biologically designed to do. Like, what the fuck is wrong with me when it's like not your fault, like, you know, no. at, at all. And but it is a guilt and just a burden that's rest on. So many women and like, I hate the idea that someone went their whole lives with just thinking like,
0: what's wrong with me, what's wrong
1: with me when it was something that was done to them. Yeah. Like, I, I hate, I hate that. I I don't know how else to say it.
0: And it's so sad because in this way, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of women had their rights, their reproductive rights taken away from them. On the opposite end of the spectrum, this is like the devil's advocate, but I don't advocate for them. Um, They said that, you know, there was a need in America for population control, and this is responsible medicine, and it can be done during a C-section. So they're like, we're saving these women money. They're already impoverished, and they already have, like— two kids so they have a third so why do they need more so they're just like why don't we just do it all in one and they signed the document and it's like yeah but that's not informed consent buddy like yeah so it was like these doctors like because what they did at the time wasn't illegal it was immoral. Right, right, right. But it wasn't yeah. against the law yet.
1: Well, and that was, again, not, trying not to bring it too much back to Longmire, but, yeah. like, that's what he confronted the doctor, and he goes, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And the doctor was, like, I was helping them. He goes, I did them a favor. And, like, he and he even said, he goes, bring another lawsuit. I don't care. I win every time because it wasn't illegal. Yeah. And it's, like, this thing of, like, how do these women get justice then? They don't. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it's like the problem is that the doctor never would have thought to have done it if it was a rich woman in pearls. Yeah. And her husband was in the waiting room smoking cigars with his mm. buddies. Like it, it wouldn't have been thought. But because these women looked a particular way and mm-hmm. had a particular culture, it was like we're helping them mm-hmm. because we don't want them to be a quote unquote. And people still say this shit drain on society. Yeah. Exactly. Fuck that notion. Yeah all together just take it and shove it up your ass
1: (laughs) (laughs) i also feel like it is particularly like it's not like we were saying earlier like our grandparents came from large families and it like was not big deal it's like oh no they need all those kids because like they have a farm or whatever and that makes sense and like a lot of these women, you know, were probably living in more urban areas and they're like, "No, like that's not okay." Like so we're going to have this one woman have six children are all going to need to go to public school and like yeah. again, like just seeing them not as humans but as you're right, this drain. It's like it yeah, yeah,
0: horrible. And I do want to say, I'm going to put this up front. Okay. None of the 10 women involved in this court case were on public assistance. Not fucking one nobody was taking welfare yeah
1: and it's not a problem if you do but like that means it's like your one excuse is not an excuse yeah exactly (laughs) like you're claiming this is okay because they're drains and it's like they're not like and not that anyone who takes welfare is a drain drain. no that's
0: part of the system of a culture of a cycle of help yeah exactly
1: (laughs) but it's like Okay, so you're saying this is the reason, and it's not actually the reason here at all, so then what is your argument? Right. Like, it's, again, just people masking racism Racism. with economic bullshit, which...
0: (laughs) which people are like, I don't understand economics, but they said... Yeah, exactly. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So... In 1974, nurseries are jammed in large city cities with newborn babies. Population control is a really popular idea. We're saving the planet by keeping people from reproducing. And a book is published called The Population Bomb. And it takes the nation by storm. It is a call to arms to stop having so many children. But it's also a doomsday tale that hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in the United States if we continue to have these babies. And because it's so popular, it gets the support of President Lyndon B. Johnson. So on a federal level and at hospitals, people are saying... How do we coerce women to have fewer children? And it is coercion. Mm-hmm. So, family planning is the new way you say it in the 70s. And there's a lot of lobby interests involved in it. And Nixon signs a bill to study population growth. And ding, 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 Rockefeller funds the program. And involuntary steril- sterilization is what happens when you have unintended consequences of money streamed in the wrong directions. They kept saying this will save the taxpayers money and hospitals and clinics were getting kickbacks for limiting Mexican and black populations.
1: Always follow the money.
0: <laughs> Always follow the money. Always go straight to the top. And speaking of the appendicitis that you were talking <gasps> about earlier, there is um a place in Mississippi that i just saw referenced um called the Mississippi appendectomy and when any like young girl went in with a uh, stomach ache they would come out sterilized and be like oh they needed their appendix removed and this happened to like 14 15 year old girls oh yeah
1: i talked about that in my episode you too. did it and i like, wanted to bring it back up yeah. that's ridiculous it's, it's, it's ridiculous i that's the thing you know it's a fucking problem when it has a nickname oh, and yeah. we still aren't talking about yeah. How fucked up it is.
0: But yeah it's a big problem so now what i'm going to do is very briefly reference each of these 10 women before okay. i talk about the court case and the outcome okay so, first is Maria. She was married in 1961. She's super sweet. And in the documentary Nomás Babies, she's sitting with her husband the whole time. She speaks solely Spanish and she's like, We love hanky panky. Oh. And like, anytime her husband's interviewed, she's like telling him what to say. And then he says oh it. God. It's really, really sweet. Um, So I believe she already had three children, maybe two, but her daughter primarily translated for her. She would drive her around in her Mm -hmm. teenage years and, you know, do what she needed to do. So even not speaking English, she would hear in the park, people call her and her family nasty names. She knew that people were saying Mexican women are having too many children, slowed down, slowed down. So when she went into labor, she was informed that she needed an emergency C-section. And while in the middle of these labor pains, in the middle of labor, under the influence of pain medication, they said, wait, we need to do one thing. She was presented with an English document. She cannot speak English. She cannot read English. There was no translation. And they just, the way she described it is they tapped her on the shoulder and said, mama, mama, and pointed to the line, like, sign here, sign here. Come on, mama. And she believed she was signing for a C-section. She did not know that she was sterilized until she returned to the hospital for her six-week checkup.
1: Which is, again, why I'm going to say that, I think it is so important to have doctors who speak multiple language,
0: doctors who come from diverse backgrounds. That comes from this. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay.
1: <laughs> Things get changed. Things get changed. Awesome. Because I always, like, I love when I go to the pharmacy and it's like, hey, if you speak this language, this language, or this language, like, tell us so we can, like, make sure you understand shit. mm mm-hmm. like, and, like, what you're signing, what you're getting. Like, it is so important to, like, recognize that not every person in the U.S. speaks
0: fucking English. Right. Because, I mean, honestly, in other, the United States is a very large country. But mm-hmm. in other countries that are much smaller, you have people coming in and out all the time that don't speak the primary language of the nation. And it is more widely accepted to be like, can you please explain that to me? Yeah. hmm Yeah. So Rebecca is next. Her story's pretty much identical in situation. She was given forms that she couldn't read. She signed two English consent forms believing that they were for a C-section, um, and she was sterilized. Consuela is next she was sterilized at 23 years old she says she had a plan to have a lot of kids she met her husband downtown at the movies and they were even like watching each other so she can't say in the documentary what movie it was because she can't remember it's so cute <laughs> and she is very interesting because she said. I came to this country legally in the 1950s. I speak English and I wasn't on welfare. So the fact that this fucking happened to me means that right. it's happening to so many people. Right. Even more women that
1: can't e- like don't even have the channels to like speak up about it. Right.
0: And um, she said that they told her you better sign those papers or your baby could die. That's what they were telling her in the hospital suite while she's in labor. Like, if you don't sign this, we can't do the procedures to get you out of here. And your baby will die. That is so
1: fucked. It's super
0: fucked. Um, It
1: also reminds me of the time where my dog was in the pet ER for some (laughs) mysterious reason. (laughs) (laughs) And I got pushed back from the nurse because I was, like, they gave me all the stuff to sign. You know, I'm distraught because my dog is vomiting blood and they're like oh well like here's all the things we're gonna do and then there was like a couple hundred dollar charge just for miscellaneous and i was like i didn't i didn't initial and she was like well you have to initial there and i was like no you told me i could initial on the things that i want done i don't want miscellaneous done (laughs) what is that i don't know and she's like well that's just in case we have to do something like that i was like yeah but if you don't do that thing do i get the money back and she was like well no and i was like then I'm not fucking signing this. I'm going to be here so you can ask me and have me sign another fucking thing. Yeah, I'll sign do it something. later. Like, and I know probably some people who work in these places are like, no, you should have signed it. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's like the same thing of like, they're telling you the worst. The, the lady literally said to me, if you don't sign miscellaneous, your dog could die. And I was like, well, he's 14. So it's probably going to happen anyways. Um, But you know what I'm saying? It's like just that whole like, medical superiority thing of yeah. like I know something you don't know and what you don't know is that your baby's gonna die and it's right. like
0: whoa and you could read the abbreviation MISC dot like yeah. th- some of these women could not yeah and it's like I don't know what that means yeah exactly like
1: and miscellaneous means the end of my potential to have a bigger family and right. that sucks
0: exactly mm. so This is another Maria, and she was sterilized at age 24. She was under anesthesia and in labor when the doctors were pressuring her to be sterilized. She consented to sterilization if the baby was a boy. So she was like, if I have the baby and it's a boy, go ahead, tie my tubes, whatever. When she gave birth, it was a girl. They sterilized her anyway. They have no documents that are signed by her. And Maria ended up attempting to take her own life because of this trauma later on. Oh, my God. Dolores Medrigal, who is the woman who the court case is named after, was 36 when she got married, and she thought the kids were out of the question for her. But then she got pregnant, and her and her husband are so, so happy. She ended up getting sterilized at 39. Um, Her and her husband are now separated because this sterilization issue was just so hard on them. Mm. She is, um, so she refused sterilization on multiple occasions. She said, no, no, no. Every time they asked her in the midst of extreme labor pains, the nurses told her husband that she could die if she had another baby. So she signed the form without knowledge of what the form actually said. And she believed that she was told that the procedure was reversible, which having your tubes tied is not reversible.
1: No, having a vasectomy is. Is
0: reversible. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Georgina was sterilized at 24. She said, we wanted two or three, and we'll wait for the fourth. She went to the hospital experiencing extreme pain and bleeding. She denied sterilization. She was asked again later in labor and in emergency C-section room. She gave firm refusal Despite this, they did the procedure anyway, and she found out later that she was sterilized only when her and her husband were trying again. Helena said no, finally gave in while in labor on the operating table. Estella was coerced by being told that another pregnancy would kill her, so she too thought that the procedure was reversible. Guadalupe birthed a stillborn during her C-section and she was sterilized and did not find out until she returned to the hospital two months later to get birth control. Um, And Yovita was told, you can have your tubes tied because your children are a burden on the government. She was under anesthesia and could not remember anything. And yet the doctors insisted that she verbally consented, but there were no paperwork. This is 10 women. These women are assumed to be drains on society most of them were here legally. Um, some of them could speak English. Uh, none of them were on government assistance. And even if they were, it is no one's job to take away your right to have children because of your ethnicity. Right. It's At all. Like
1: It's, like, important to, like, say those things. But, like, there's no reason to
0: ever do this to, to someone anyone. without their consent. Right. So um, for these women, they say that their plans came tumbling down in life. Their husbands started to drink um, in some cases, and not these 10 women, but in many other cases, their husbands start to hit them when they can't get pregnant again. The cultural understanding was that women get sterilized so that they can sleep with other men, um, and it made them seem like streetwalkers. I never even thought about how that would be perceived. in their own communities it's terrible so they kept it secret because these are big latina catholic families and it's like well if you want to be sterilized it's because (sighs) you want to fuck around with people oh my god oh some of them their sons were interviewed during the documentary and they were like (laughs) cutely in spanish like mama why didn't you tell me I'm 38 years old and I'm finding about this now on the documentary. I didn't know you were sterilized and I didn't know you were part of a public court case. And I think that's just a sign of how traumatic this was for them. This is something that they kept between themselves and their husbands. And one of the women said, I carry my own cross. This is not for my family to know so i would show up to those baby showers and i would get that twist in my chest when someone said are you having more kids oh my god but my song is finished is what one of them said it's terrible which is
1: also like why we need to like make it like we need to stop asking every single woman when she's having children because like it is like i hate that like it it's almost like when, like, the night you get engaged, we're like, when's your wedding? You're like, I don't know. I got engaged two seconds ago. No, I
0: don't know. And it's like, we know that one in four women have miscarriages. Mm-hmm. We know that one in four women have experienced sexual assault. Right. Like, so... So you're telling me you're going to be triggering 50% of women when you ask that question? Exactly. That's absurd. And then the women who are struggling to get pregnant, who want to get pregnant, who have to go on IVF. It's like, I mean, you're clearly three out of the four women you ask are going to have an emotional breakdown when you ask that question. So just stop. Right.
1: Or the women who just don't want them. And it's like, wow, I'm being really fucking tired of answering this goddamn
0: question. So that's the other four. So 100% (laughs) of
1: women. 100% (laughs) of women don't want to answer that question. (laughs) To men men or women. We don't
0: want to ask it. Answer it at all. We just covered the entire docket of women. That's rough. (laughs) Okay. So now we're going to get a little bit into the case and the logistics. Okay. So the whistleblower for this case is Dr. Bernard Rosenfeld. He was a resident doctor. He was young at the time. He was Jewish. His father's a rabbi. And his father said, speak up. Anytime you see something that isn't right, you speak out. The hospital told him, you need to ask all these girls if they want tubal ligation. I don't care how old they are. Um, And he was like, do you ask them during labor? And they were like, yeah, that's how it's done. <sighs> Sterilization, he says, is just so reminiscent of Nazi Germany. And that that's usually the first step in getting rid of, quote unquote, unwanted people. He started going through boxes and boxes of charts and documents, finding thousands of Chicano women who were sterilized. And he started collecting evidence to take to the higher-ups at the hospital. So the head physician at the ward is Dr. E.G. Quilligan, obviously from the case Madrigal V. Quilligan. Uh, He's a very highly respected doctor around this country. He came to California. From Yale, he's still today is a super highly respected doctor in this country. Really, so no one dare speak ill of him. And well, he, we
1: are today, yeah, we on are absolutely. He, wow. he,
0: he. Also, though, he was at least, you know balled up enough to like be in the documentary he did come and answer to the charges you know how sometimes they're like they would not speak on the thing mm-hmm. like he did show up and answer the questions which was decent of him but he's a dickhead like
1: ja rule and all the uh... yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly fire like, island.
0: what's my motherfucking I name
1: <laughs> i don't actually know if he ever appeared in any of them but i missed
0: our role in mm. fire island or whatever mm. <laughs> fire
1: fist. is that what we're talking about yeah i just wanted to add a slight bit of levity before we get into like the real fucking bullshit oh okay. yeah here
0: we are um so bernard goes to him and says hey look look at this evidence i've collected and quilligan's like okay you know he's that doctor up in the office You know, he's the high up, like he's the one in scrubs that like doesn't come down anymore. Uh Um, and he's like, listen, I can't be in every delivery room. You know, I'm in my big fancy office upstairs. So let me talk to these doctors and see what's going on. He talks to them. They said they didn't do it. Leave it at that. All the doctors are like, we didn't do that because they're Mexican. Um. So every night after work, Bernard starts writing letters to get attention. He writes letters to government officials, to Reverend Jesse Jackson, to newspapers, to Cosmo magazine, anything oh my God. anything he could think of. He's writing letters. I'm sorry, what is his name again? Um Bernard Rosenfeld. Bernard. We love you. What a gem. Serious gem. He also is in the documentary, (laughs) but the sterilizations just kept happening. So he starts writing down conversations that he's having and overhearing with other doctors. One thing that he picked up at one point is one doctor was in the hall and was like, I didn't mind Mexicans when I came here, but now I do. And the other doctor's like, yeah, all they do is screw drink and drive. (gasps) And it's like, if you don't think your implicit bias is changing the way that you act towards these people, then you're an idiot.
1: It's, like Tobias in Arrested Development (laughs) like can you just record yourself and listen back for a hot second we
0: do it every week we do (laughs) every week and we're terrible and every week
1: I am disgusted with myself (laughs) um but you know it's like if you could because the whole thing is like you're just saying things off of the the sounding board of like Oh yeah, it's like you know when you get around someone who like says something because we're white, yeah, and you're like, no, um, no, that's not how you know, no, that's That's not not what I was saying. I didn't want that to be said at all. Actually, (laughs) like, but that's the thing god bless bernard for being like uh no you did
0: be- do it because they were mexican yeah, like, you, I exactly yeah I, you i said. wrote down exactly what you said exactly what you said because i'm a doctor of shit. <laughs> um so when people at the hospital weren't listening he starts shopping this around to law firms in the area and everyone's turning him down they're like no of course we're not going after. they can't for, take on big medicine no, la county hospital are you kidding it's like the biggest hospital here so one firm decides to accept And the case is taken by a 27-year-old Hispanic lawyer named attorney Antonia Hernandez. And I love her and her big gold hoops that she Ah. wore to the earrings. Bless her. Um, I love that. Gold hoop energy, my girl. Uh, And her supervisor was 29. So you have two under 30s taking this case on. Oh, my God. I love it. She says he comes in. He tells me what's happening. She's a brand new out of UCLA he brought boxes of evidence and just names so she starts driving around LA to find these women because they had to find the women yeah Th- no women were there's bringing no this. The co- women. there's no case yeah so she's driving around she's interviewing people and it was a super slow process and it was really personal so in many households she actually ended up informing the women that they were sterilized <gasps> a lot of them didn't know yet And she'd just go around town. Do you know so-and-so? Do you know so-and-so? Do you know so-and-so? Until she got pointed in the right direction. Sometimes when husbands would enter the room and the woman just found out, the woman would start talking about something else in Spanish and get her out because it was like, oh, I didn't know. My husband doesn't know. Get out of here for some women the statute of limitations was up they couldn't press charges and she said it took her a year to prepare this case and it was david v goliath it was a 27 year old hispanic female lawyer versus the county of la i
1: can't even imagine
0: this woman we need to put a picture of her when we put up the thing because she's incredible Antonia Hernandez cheers to you (laughs) um she had to tell these women that it would be very public the case was suing for a couple things suing for damages for consent forms to be in Spanish for regulations to sterilization and for possible criminal charges for the doctors the women in the case were like there's no way this little girl is gonna win this court case they knew but they were also like we're in it yeah, The 10 women who signed on were like, we're in this for the, the women below us. And mm-hmm. some of them did have girl children. Like, they yeah. had other children um, that existed. So the defense was Dr. E.J. Quilligan. And he said, it's ridiculous. And... Um, It's weird that anybody would think they were pushing family planning on one particular group or population. Family planning was just popular. And every woman should have a choice to have or not have children. So he's playing to the white women like, oh, you should be allowed to not have children. Right.
1: He's like feigning feminism to do harm to non-white women.
0: Exactly. That's exactly what he did. Other doctors under him were sued in the case, and they said tubal ligation happens after C-sections. That's how it's done. You, you would ask during the procedure. That's just how it was done back then. And um, another doctor said, I arrived in L.A. and got one hour of orientation, and I was on the floor. I didn't speak a word of Spanish. What did you want me to do? And I really do think that some of these men were really just in over their heads. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it, yeah. But I think some of them were in over their heads. There was a female doctor named Karen Benneker, and she said that she saw people go like, hey, do you want this shot? You want this shot to make the pain go away? Sign this document. Like, do you want this? Do you want, like, your contractions to not hurt? Sign this. And another doctor came in and said, we got a grant if we can cut back on the black and Mexicans. And she just (sighs) was like, my jaw hit the floor. Like, really? So, attorney Hernandez said, yeah. I'm
1: also going to say, I hate that, like, this is happening, too, to, like, new doctors who, like, if we learned anything from the podcast Dirty John or not Dirty John, the other fucking one, about Dr. Death. Yes. It's that like it is near impossible To, like, actually report, like, medical people of wrongdoing. Like, it is, there's so much legal backlash that, like, it is actually a really difficult task that should be simple. But, like, you're not allowed to give bad recommendations of doctors to other hospitals. No,
0: and the guy who was the whistleblower on this case, Bernard, Mm -hmm. like, they tried to get his license taken away. Yeah,
1: I'm sure, because that's the thing. It's like, wow, do I just throw away all these Years and all this money for med school and be in debt for the rest of my and life? Then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just for like what? To maybe have these women get justice, but like maybe not. Maybe nothing happens with this. Like yeah. it's fucked that like that's the decision they have to
0: make. Yeah. It's crazy. So. Attorney Hernandez says that, in general, the doctors, specifically Dr. Quilligan, were indignant that a 27-year-old lawyer would be judging their medical knowledge. Oh, my God. So, I also want to paint the picture of surrounding America the timing was right after the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and this is when the chicana civil rights movement or chicano civil rights movement began we don't talk about that one a lot but they were fighting for hispanic racial equality in the united states and there were many street protests in the u.s and specifically in california fighting for rights that you've probably heard about my kid is placed in a low class in school because mm-hmm. they're not the same race as you. We get arrested more often. We're excluded from clubs and organizations though so we don't want you around here mm-hmm. type of attitude. Most Chicano rallies, though, were led by men. So the causes of females, like involuntary sterilization, were an afterthought. I do want to point out, Mexican men were being sterilized as well, but only 33% above those of different races, unlike the 60% of the women. Mm -hmm. But also, white feminism at the time was fighting for abortion and birth control rights. Roe v. Wade happened this year. Oh, my God. So they were like, my God, shh, stop talking about wanting more babies, you idiots. Oh, my God. All the Mexican and other Hispanic women were asking for was a 72-hour period to think about sterilization. They wanted three days. You have to give someone three days. But at the time the leading feminists wanted sterilization on demand. So the two movements, instead of saying, yes, together we can fight for a choice in our reproductive future, they worked in direct opposition to one another, yeah. overall causing Chicano women's voices to be muffled. Which is it a just, shame.
1: It feels like such a repetitive story of like <sighs> white feminism just taking control and just speaking for all women when they have no right to
0: we should talk about iceland how they get women from all the groups to join (laughs) together thank you
1: iceland (laughs) the most diverse country on the planet
0: (laughs) let's get the poor woman and the woman who cooks (laughs) cake but it is like
1: i mean there is economic diversity and racial diversity and both need to be present. And unfortunately, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before in the separate gent movement, mm-hmm. how, like, it was like, if we let you speak, then we're not speaking loud enough. We cannot let our message be diluted with, like, your rights and your rights and your rights. So we're just going to go with
0: our rights, yeah. you know, it- of
1: the majority, which always ends up being, like, middle to upper class white females.
0: And it's sad because it's, like... <laughs> you you understand where it's coming from it's yeah. like white women could barely defend themselves let yeah. alone put up an army for wim- people of color yeah. but it's like that's not fair and it's not okay and i think we keep pointing it out mm-hmm. because nobody we can never say that feminism is perfect yeah. until we keep learning yeah and second wave feminism needed to learn and oh, now yeah. we're here trying to do it absolutely Um, so the trial, here's the outcome. The trial was two and a half weeks long. Many say that the judge came into it with a eugenics background, but I couldn't find proof of that. Okay. Um, Dr. Quilligan did not feel he or his doctors had done something morally wrong. Of course, he said, it's ideal to have a woman have a birth plan laid out ahead of time, which you do have to do now with your OBGYN. Really? You you have to answer, do you want this to happen during your labor? Do you want this to happen? Yeah. You have to, like, check the boxes. Um, Like, I don't want you to ever do this no matter what I say. Because you're under the influence, like, not only of medicine, but, like, extraordinary pain. Um... Um, so the, he knows that like this shouldn't have been happening during labor labor, but he said like some women never came to the OBGYN before. So it's like, we didn't get the chance to answer these questions. So we were giving the best care we thought we should give. So he was dismissed from the case. So once that happened, it ceased being a class action lawsuit and it became 10 lawsuits against 10 different doctors and things just kind of fell apart. They were like, listen, I'm sure there is racism in L.A. County Hospital, but this was not part of some greater conspiracy of the government to sterilize Mexican women. Attorney Hernandez, however, said that if you went into a hospital bed to have a baby and are asked to sign paperwork that you can't read while under the influence of medication and in the middle of labor, it is not free, voluntary, or informed consent. Okay. And it's not.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not.
0: (laughs) No. Uh the women were like I see the judge he's married he has kids he must be human you know he's got to hear our side of the story But on the contrary <laughs> it sounded like the judge wanted to blame the women for not having a plan set up ahead of time with the hospital They lost the case and the doctors were dismissed and most of them still practice law some or medicine some of them still in LA today However they won public support most women who heard about this were pissed, and some men were pissed too. They said, we need rapid change. And it played a role in changing how society felt about these issues. Now, when you go into a hospital, you get bilingual documents. You get bilingual counselors at every county hospital. It challenged the nation to look and say, we were wrong, and we needed to make sure that these people know what's happening to them. And by these people, I mean Everyone needs to know what's happening to them. They didn't win the court case, but they won through regulatory changes. The sterilization law in California was finally repealed in 1979. In March 2003, the governor of California apologized for the sterilization program in California. He said to the people of California, the victims, and the families, our hearts are heavy Eugenics is a regrettable chapter, one that must never be repeated. Mm. Of the 10 women, many appeared in the documentary No Most Babies that came out in 2019. Many of them are grandmothers now and have lived a full life of joy and sorrow. But one of the women said, The way I felt then when I was young, 23, it hasn't changed. My loss hasn't changed. And they cannot do this to any other women. Mm. And that's the story of Madrigal v. Killikan. I mean. What a ride. What a ride. (laughs) And Um, we did it in under an hour. Very uh,
1: (laughs) understandably sad and upsetting and
0: it's like under it's sad and upsetting and yet predictable which oh is gosh. what's yeah That's what's so upsetting about
1: it. I would have been surprised if they won the case which is yeah. the really upsetting part of that story. Right. It's just especially in the 70s. Oh yeah. my gosh. Like you would hope for different outcomes today but it's probably unlikely, you know, yeah. still. And it just I don't know. I didn't know anything about that, you know, and the more stories like this we cover the more I feel like just I don't know the more important it is to talk about it yeah it's a it's a great learning process no it is and then you also like a lot of people are like oh like why don't all women go on like you know birth control and get IUDs and things like that and like well because some women have histories in their culture of you know being sterilized without their consent so like you know it they have like a genuine like and understandable distrust of the medical system right of being lied to coerced tricked like yeah it's absolutely understandable and you know and the fact that
0: like these programs were funded by the federal government and given grants just is like a true note to like the idea that the government was against people of color yeah um what like it's it's systemic and I know we talk about that a lot but it is important to say yeah um because it it, like there were there was money being given to people to sterilize women of color and that's terrible (sighs) I hope your story is better is it better Uh, it is yeah yeah. (laughs) let's go get another drink thank you the women of hashtag history for giving us some California news (laughs) yes From the West Coast <gasps> All right, to well, the East Coast. <laughs> so we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. And you know how Katie and I love to promote our books. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash her story and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Just go to audibletrial.com slash her story. And then you can have your books while you're sitting in your living room on the rocks. Well, here we are back again with,
1: New drinks.
0: A happier story, hopefully.
1: A happier story. Uh, some parts are definitely happier. Okay. Definitely. Um, it's definitely a shorter story mm-hmm. uh, with more ambiguous research. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to say.
0: Um, well, tell me what I'm drinking because it looks
1: delicious. <laughs> okay. So this is called Rose of Lena. Um, so this is a take on a Thai iced tea. So it is two ounces of spiced rum, an ounce of mango juice, uh, two to four ounces of iced tea, two ounces of condensed milk and nutmeg. And you shake all of that very well. And then you garnish with fresh basil. This is brave. Cheers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good.
1: I love Thai iced tea. It's I don't know if you ever go so to those places, yeah. but they're so delicious. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, should I get, like, the little tapioca balls to put in the bottom? And I was like, nah, it's bubble tea, bubble mm. tea.
0: Okay. Mm. Okay. So I know nothing <laughs> about this woman. <laughs>
1: don't even okay, ask me. Perfect. You know I don't know anything. I know you don't know because I didn't know either. I barely I know like, her wow, name. there's
0: nothing. <laughs> Okay, well, let's learn what you found, and we'll see. Okay,
1: um, so, uh, I got a lot of this from a very helpful YouTube video by Kai Yao Ma, um, the blog, uh, Thailand, and of course Wikipedia, and then some (laughs) other random websites and blogs, um, it was very hard to find.
0: This was a journey. This was a journey for me, um...
1: (laughs) Because, like, it's this woman who, like, I feel like it has just impacted Thailand's culture so much. But we, like, there's just not much on her. And, like, I, again, I feel like we run into this problem a lot. We're like, there probably is, but it's, like. In Thai. In Thai. So I, you know, don't. I can't read it. <laughs> um, and I, again, want to say, so um, there is a note. So we are talking about the area of Thailand. But up until 1939, it was called Siam. Um, so that's predominantly the name that I'm going to be using. Um, and then there were also two different spellings of her name. Um, there was R-A-S-M-I, and then there was R-A-S-A-M-I, so Rasami and Rasmi. So I'm just going to go with um, Rashmi because I feel like, uh, I don't know, that, I don't know. So <laughs> Say what you want. <laughs> okay. Princess Dar Rashmi of Chiang Mai was born on august twenty sixth nineteen i mean sorry eighteen seventy three <laughs> that 's a different century in Lina, uh, which is a kingdom which is now northern Thailand. Her parents were King Inthawich Ayanon and Queen Thip Khe Son. We don't know too much about her early life, but we do know that Dara was very good at horseback riding and she was very well educated. She was fluent in English, the Siam dialect, and the Lana dialect. She was also trained from a young age in the customs of both courts, which is important because the story of these two kingdoms, Lana and Siam, ...is central to her story. So I'll give you a quick, probably grossly incompetent and incomplete history of
0: <laughs> these two kingdoms. That's exactly what I've always wanted. I know. A grossly <laughs> inaccurate.
1: So the kingdom of Lanna was an important cultural region which was most well known for spreading Theravada Buddhism... And, unfortunately, also very well known for being taken over by Burma, which is modern <laughs> Myanmar, mm-hmm. um, sometime in the 16th century. So, about two, it, they just, I mean, it was like 200 years or so more of oppressive Burmese rule. It was not a good situation. So, after this, there was a rebellion, and the southern kingdom of Siam helped the Lana people liberate their country. And basically after this, Lena became a vassal state to the kingdom of Siam. Siam was to remain their, uh, like, the more affluent kingdom that Lena had to answer to. But they were allowed to remain their own kingdom with their own royal family, their laws, their customs, and their language. So, like, because I was, <laughs> I was like, what the hell is a vassal state? I've literally never heard of that before. But it's apparently just kind of like, yeah, you can exist separately, but, you know, like we're together in this. And like, I think there's probably some also like trading kind of deals and stuff like that going on. So that was the situation right now. (laughs) Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and this seemed to really work out for them. Siam got to expand its power a little bit and Lana was protected from further conquest. So uh actually Burma tried to or Myanmar tried to take back Lana three times, but failed every time because Siam had its back and they're like, You're not taking this area again. Hmm. But when Dara Rashmi is growing up, there is another threat, a much larger threat to Lana. The British Empire has just taken over Burma, and people are starting to worry that they have their eyes on Lana and then Siam. Hmm. One of the reasons they thought this was because it was rumored that Queen Victoria was hoping to adopt Dara as a way of again inching into that region of erica of asia so erica
0: erica that region of erica Arica. um <laughs> so wait she wanted your people thought that queen victoria wanted to adopt princess dara yes as a way to like get into that area now to marry one of her nine children or just adopt her just adopt her
1: i didn't and un- that's there wild. was no more information
0: i mean i mean it makes i mean she's seen as like the grandmother of the world because mm-hmm. of the amount of children that she had married off and then the children that they had marrying other people mm-hmm. so it very well may have been that she's marrying that she wanted her to marry someone in her family she could have yeah Yeah. absolutely like adopt as an in-law quote-unquote
1: yeah and i think at this point like the british empire is frustrated because they're like why can we infiltrate every other piece of land except for like these two kingdoms like what the fuck is going on there and they're frustrated Mm. so Mm. i think they're trying to kind of be like okay like how can we get in there (laughs) um so they they are not okay with this because again they're the only like this is one of the only areas of the world that had not been colonized by spain france or england or at least at least become like some kind of territory which i also did not know i always assumed that thailand had gone the way of a lot of the other countries in that area of being colonized but like they did not which i think is a really important thing to know
0: it is amazing and i there's like a really cool map of the world that i have on my classroom wall that is called countries not colonized (laughs) (laughs) and it's like two places yeah exactly (laughs) i'll have to look it up and show it to you it's really funny so when these funny in a bad way yeah, exactly (laughs) morbidly funny
1: (laughs) when these rumors started going around of england encroaching on lana like Siam was especially like, "We cannot let this happen, and Lena didn 't want it to happen either, so they knew they had to prevent this somehow, so they decided to strengthen their bond and protect Dara from Great Britain. <laughs> just imagining like don 't let her get adopted um, by having Rama V so this is the king of Siam um, Chula Longhorn, Rama V. He sent his brother, and he was like, okay, just go over and, like, you know, propose to her for me. So, like, she is going to be one of my wives. So, mm. so, he proposes to Dara. And so, in 1886, the 13-year-old princess left Chiang Mai and entered the Grand Palace in Bangkok and became one of the many wives of King Rama V, Chulalongkorn. And she was given the title Chao Chom, or Princess Consort. So, Chulalongkorn had four wives. 36 consorts and around 80 concubines eventually having 77 living children
0: sounds like a real king david am i right
1: (laughs) (laughs) there's no real reason that dara should have stood out from the rest but she did Yes! When yes. Dara, I know. <gasps> when Dara arrived with her ladies-in-waiting, people just assumed that she would a- adapt to the Southern style. Women in Bangkok wore their hair very short at this time, which was really surprising to huh. me. Like, the pictures are all yeah, very short Wait, hair. like
0: pixie cut short? Pretty much, yeah. Or like Bob? No, pixie. Oh, like cute. Yeah. And
1: they wore a type of Thai dress called a Pha Nung, which is kind of like a two-part, um, you know, the closest I think that we have in our common a sari, like a sorry. yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, there's a part one around the waist, and there's another which is wrapped around the chest, leaving um, one shoulder and the arms bare. But Dara and her ladies chose to wear a fascin, which is similar, but it was a l- like it had long straight sleeves, um, still a piece of fabric over one shoulder, um, but there's a lot less exposure up at the top. And she chose to keep the fabric and the patterns of the northern kingdom of. Lana so she it was a very bold statement of like at this time it was like you look so different why <laughs> it's yeah, like it's we like, don't have that here
0: <laughs> I love that it's like take a look at me friends. exactly
1: <laughs> she also kept her hair very long again which was not the style at the time and it was very controversial which is why we have a ton of photos of her with long hair I mean they were obsessed with taking photos of it like nearly dragging on the ground and like you know over chairs and like she's always also looking in a mirror which like I don't know if that's That's like symbolic in a way, but she's always like, it's always taken from the back and you can see her face in the mirror. I have a question. Yes.
0: If you didn't cut your hair, would Uh it like hit the ground? If I, mine? Yeah. Cause I don't cut my hair and it hasn't grown in years. This is how long (laughs) my hair is. This is naturally how long my hair is. I'm going to say
1: yes because my hair Your hair is very healthy.
0: Yes, it is. And it grows like crazy. That's how my daughter's hair is. Yeah. Um I don't understand it. Yeah,
1: it's it's really funny actually, um because I have not cut I the literal last time I got my hair cut was 2 weeks before I got engaged. It's <laughs> that's,
0: that's a decade ago. <laughs>
1: Which <laughs> Uh, I should have been married twice now, mm-hmm. um, so uh, whenever people ask me, they're like,
0: oh, like, you know, you know, how long have
1: you been engaged? I'm like, uh, this long, uh, <laughs> 10 inches.
0: <laughs> Second question, am I too old for my hair to be this long? No. Okay, great. No, great. No, great. I was just checking. No. I was no. just checking. Uh, I
1: do need to get my hair trimmed, though, because it is uh, not doing so hot. I got a lot of split ends Well, I here. could do all that. Like, can <laughs> you hear it when you... Oh, absolutely. I (laughs) crinkle my hair all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real
0: crinkly. Okay. Um, Okay. Long hair. Perfect. Dragging on the ground. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But she uh, typically wore it in a bun when in public. She also chose to speak in the Lanat dialect, even though everyone knew she was fluent in both. So, it might seem, like, kind of weird that there wasn't more integration of the two cultures. I mean, they are very closely tied. You know, they were right next to each other. But Chiang Mai was over 400 miles away. <laughs> so the people in Bangkok didn't see her as just a little different. They saw her as like Laotian or Burmese. They're mm. like, you know, you just aren't Thai, basically. Like, you know, you're not Siamese. And they didn't like this. And they used it in ex- as an example of her ethnic inferiority. And they would say, like, oh, gosh, like, you know, the Lao ladies over there, they all smell like fish, <gasps> you know. And it
0: was, like, very, like, they suck. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even on the coast in Lao. exactly. But
1: Dara was like, no, no, no. It's not an ethnic inferiority. It's an important ethnic distinction. So she set out to prove that. And she used the best tool that she had at the time to help Chiang Mai Mai style gain acceptance. Pop culture.
0: She's just wearing her varsity letter jacket in public. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So she's like, you know what? I'm going to use pop culture or the closest thing they have at the time, the theater. (laughs) So... As we will see, Dara is an incredibly creative person who has a real passion for the arts. And while she was princess consort, she wrote a dramatic play that used the northern style of dress and dance. And people loved it. Calm down. Mm -hmm. After this, the northern style of dance and drama started to become more incorporated in the south. And now it's actually the prominent style across all of Thailand. This type of dance is officially the Phon thai dance and there are three versions of it. One with scarves, one with candles and the most famous one Fon Lep which is the Thai dance where the dancers mainly keep the bottom half of their body kind of still and do a lot of arm and hand work with the long brass fingertips which I know that like I feel like when you say that everyone's like oh I know exactly I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Which I feel like has become one of the most recognizable features of Thailand uh, and
0: of Thai dance in general. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So she brings that down to the south and it kind of creates like a whirlwind. And um, this was a huge accomplishment. But Dara was hoping that her legacy would live on in other ways. And on October 2nd, 1889, she gave birth to her daughter, Princess Vimolnaka Nabisi. And she was officially promoted. To Chow, Chow Manda, or Prince Princess Consort Mother.
0: So because she ended up so she's already married, mm-hmm. but on one of the nights when he was free, he had sex with her mm-hmm. and therefore she is with child and now she's promoted. Yeah, now she's promoted. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Um And it's not, like, so now she's more than just a regular consort. And out of Chulalongkorn's partners, she's now ranked fifth, which is pretty good. Um, And, of course, Dara made sure that she raised her daughter just like she would if they were in Chiang Mai, dressing her in northern clothes and patterns and mothering her the way they do up there keeping her a lot closer than some other Thai women like you know than was normal for like the other like royal mothers it's like yeah here's your nanny exactly um but unfortunately when princess Vilmanaka was just two years and eight months old she became ill and passed away on February 21st 1892 no very sudden it was absolutely devastating not only to dara but to her husband the people of siam and the people of lana and chiang mai i mean this was the baby that was the like symbol of the bond between their two kingdoms and and she's gone princess dara rashmi was so distraught after her only daughter's death that she destroyed all the photos and portraits of her as well as those of her husband and daughter together. The baby's ashes were divided in half uh, with one part kept with her mother's ashes eventually in the Chiang Mai Royal Cemetery at Wat Son Dock and the other in the Royal Cemetery um, in Bangkok, which I actually like it's kind of a poetic end that like half of her ashes remained in each kingdom. Like, even like years after, you know, because I mean, her ashes weren't moved to Chiang Mai until, you know, Dara died. So it, you know, it's like just a symbol of like the bond expands even more than we, right? And the straddling of two worlds. Exactly. Mm. Um, Thankfully, this didn't mean any kind of demotion or anything like that, um, you know, for Dara, which it might in some cases. In fact, she was promoted again to Her Highness Princess Consort, which I guess was kind of a sign that, you know, he was like, you're still an important part of the royal family. You know, but honestly, I don't know if that was actually the case because there are so many titles. I looked at the Wikipedia page. and It was so long, just of all the different titles that consorts and concubines and wives could have in Thailand at the time. And
0: it was um it was a lot Um, so it's not like (laughs) in in like the English thing where it's like HRH you're her royal highness Mm -hmm. or you're not Mm -hmm. or you're just your highness
1: yeah I don't really know like but I also know that we'll get into it but her husband took a lot from English culture okay so I'm wondering if like he did like give her the title her royal highness to be like no like you you are more important to me than just you having children I care for you exactly um, And this is the thing. He did care for her a lot. And she cared for him. She had a level of freedom that some other women may not have been allotted. And when she was allowed to go back home to visit her family in 1908, Chula Longhorn sent her with a ton of soldiers to protect her. And he made sure that he went to the train station to see her off And then he arranged for his brother to meet her halfway in the middle where she had to switch from a train to a boat just to make sure she got off the train and on the boat like safely. Because this was a long ass journey. (laughs) Apparently it took over two months to travel from Bangkok to Chiang Mai. Damn. I know. It was like two months and nine days. And he just wanted to make sure that she was okay. Which is so sweet. And we also know that they wrote really affectionate letters back and forth to one another while they were apart, which is something I just really wasn't expecting from a man with four wives and 30 something consorts and 80 concubines, you know. Well, if you got that hair. I I just <laughs> she had the long hair. You liked her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's
1: terrible. Um so This leads me into wanting to talk about Chulalongkorn for a bit because he's a really interesting figure in Thai history. He was the king, um, Rama V, from 1868 to 1910, and his goal was to modernize Siam and make them more of a global presence. He became the first king of Siam to visit Europe and meet with foreign dignitaries, striking deals with them to make sure that his country stayed independent. Oh, cool. That was like his goal. He was like... I'm cool with you guys. If you're cool with me, okay, Well stay the fuck away. (laughs) Get out of here. And he also knew that the way to like positively maintain their relationships was to send his kids to school in Europe. Mm. So he was kind of like, see, Like they're becoming, you know, educated in your system. Like we're cool with each other. Again, just like he knew exactly what they wanted of him, which I think is very smart. He was
0: assimilating his children to in an effort to like please the colonizers. Exactly, very smart. You know, very smart. Um, He
1: opened up railways, power plants. He established the first defense ministry, and he abolished slavery in modern thailand damn get it get it he Thank you. also abolished prostration which i was like what like what that's do you when you get all the, the way, way on the floor and yeah, put your nose down right exactly your nose and head. look was, at me I know. <laughs> it was the act of people literally having to get on the ground and kneel you know
0: yeah yeah you're right forehead to the ground before people in power oh that's interesting because a lot of like monotheistic religions like i think specifically like muslim people prostrate in mosques mm-hmm. like to god yeah mm-hmm. yeah but, but not to people in power it's like right. the king and i like get lower than me yeah
1: exactly and chula Longcorn was like this is ridiculous and it's super offensive <laughs> he said from now on the siamese are permitted to stand up before dignitaries to display an act of respect they may take a bow instead taking a bow will be regarded as like the new form of paying respect he's like basically telling his people get the fuck up off the ground you're worth more than that damn i know so i just want to also say like i'm sure that there are things that he did that were like fucked up and like not okay for siam but like i honestly like didn't really come across that And he seemed like a really beloved king. And even when I was watching videos about him on YouTube, it was all like nice things and praise in the comments. So if he was a secret villain, let me know, because it kind of seemed like he was really
0: great. Well, I mean, it like if we were to pause and compare it, it would be like people like George Washington. Oh, yeah. Who it's like. Overall, the praise is magnificent. What a wonderful man. You did incredible things, but but you're a slave owner and but you obviously were not super into the Native American people. So it's like there are like always these if and or buts. Yeah. And it's you know, but still in the in the national vernacular, George Washington is better than most yeah (laughs) (laughs) like wink wink wasn't thomas jefferson wasn't andrew jackson you know exactly (laughs) he gets a better than card (laughs) exactly (laughs) i'll take it
1: but either way (laughs) when dar returned to bangkok after her six-month visit back home the king the royal family government officials and just Thousands of people came to receive her with a hundred royal boats at Ang Tong. Ugh,
0: I thought you were gonna say they got in a line with pom-poms and had her run through. They probably did that too, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's
1: sparklers, like a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> um just I honestly feel like he just loved her so much. Like again, like there's no reason that she should really be given all this special treatment, but he was just like, You're home! miss you she was quirky (gasps) i know um and then the last way that we know that he cared for her is that while she was at home visiting her family he built her a house swan farang kong sai right next to the palace so that she would be close by but she would have her own space very cute (gasps) but just a year later on october 23rd 1910 that's your birthday i know (laughs) (laughs) Chula Longhorn, King Rama V, died of kidney failure. I know. (gasps) That's what I'm worried about. I know. Oh, damn. Oh, I'm riddled with kidney stones. I fear kidney failure on a daily basis because I don't drink enough water.
0: I'm worried about livers. Oh, you're worried about the liver, (laughs) yes. Yeah, mine's the alcohol one. Yours is the water one. Mine's the water one Mm because I do not
1: drink enough water. Um. So I couldn't really find too much information about this period of her life, but I'm sure she was really sad. Um, Again, it just seemed like they really cared for each other. Um, So in the mourning period, she stayed in Bangkok for another four years, but after 28 years of serving as a lady in the court of a palace that she, you know, it wasn't really her home. She asked King Rama VI if she could retire to her home of Chiang Mai. And he said, okay. <laughs> That's cute. Good for him. Also, like, good for her for asking. I'm just going to say it. I think it's awesome that she was like, look, I did my duty. I loved your brother. Can I please go home? And he's like, yeah, sure. Like,
0: Say what you need to <laughs> say. <laughs>
1: So she went home to resume her duties preserving Lana culture and honoring her family's heritage. <laughs> she erected beautiful mausoleums to honor the royal family. Because at this point, like the royal family's dying, and she knows that Lana is like not like its own separate kingdom anymore. It's not so sustainable. Like, Let's remember that we were a separate kingdom and we had royal families and These are who they were, and, like, these are the mausoleums dedicated to them. Let's get some obelisks in here. Exactly. She went around repairing just, like, religious sites that had been forgotten or run down. She set up a weaving factory and other establishments to preserve the fabric, art, and culture of Lana and Chiang Mai. She also helped produce more local dance and music shows. She also composed some music herself. Uh, One song of hers was even in honor of King Rama VI, which isn't a bad way to have northern music being played in the south. (laughs) (laughs) She also wanted to leave her mark on the agriculture of Chiang Mai. She had an irrigation ditch made to help local farmers water their land so the kingdom could produce more food. She also helped bring in cold climate vegetables, which we might not think of, you know, it ever getting cold in Thailand. But from what I understand, like, they do have some colder months in the northern area where it can get, you know, kind of chilly at night, and there can actually be frost on things. So I, I don't really know this for sure. I guess this helped them grow more varieties all year long. Honestly, this was like a very short uh, thing that was said in one of the videos, so I'm assuming a lot. (laughs) Good job. Uh, She also planted longan trees from China, which she propagated from the twigs of a tree given to her as a gift from a Chinese dignitary. And... This was an important tree to bring in, not only because it was beautiful and just graced the landscape, but it brought in another source of income since people could pick and sell the long fruits, which are similar to lychee. So Mm. it was, again, like a beautiful cash crop that wasn't like invasive or bad. It just like only added to, you know, the landscape and the economy. (sighs) That's great. But one of her most beautiful additions to Thailand's agriculture was a rose variety she established from various types of English roses. Ooh. She had been a member of the English Rose Society for years with a goal of creating a rose market in Thailand. It resulted in her propagating a beautiful, deep pink rose with a captivating scent and no thorns. What? No thorns. I didn't even know roses could not have thorns. I didn't know that was a thing. What a hybrid breed. I know. And she named it Chula Longcorn after her late husband. That is the
0: cutest.
1: I know. I'm dead. And if you Google Chula Longcorn roses, this will come up and it is a like I'm okay. Okay. I'm just going to say I'm not anti-rose. I am anti like the tight ass red roses that like
0: long stem roses. I don't
1: let those fuckers bloom. They are so beautiful when they open up. Just <laughs> let them open up.
0: Yeah. I, I remember I, I remember as a child being really confused when I saw Alice in Wonderland and like these yes. big fucking flowers yes. and then when i the the house i lived in when i lived in baltimore city the woman who lived there before me was like good at plants and she had like a rose bush that i destroyed but well, it was roses are hard it was really pretty <laughs> in the meantime yeah and like every year at least something would bloom yeah um and it was just so remarkable like a wild rose versus oh, yeah. like a long stem florist rose Exactly. Um, so
1: she made this chula long corn rose and she grew large bushes of them around <laughs> her home for the rest of her life.
0: Stop.
1: And she would snip one every day <gasps> to place in front of his picture in her room. Stop it. This is what I'm saying. It, this was a two-way th- like They loved each other. They loved each other. And I was like, I want more information on this. <laughs> Like, all of our Thai listeners please. help us <laughs> what was their relationship like oh God. but in 1933 an old lung ailment came back western and Thai doctors tried their best to cure her but nothing was working so on December 9th 1933 her highness princess Dara Rashmi passed away peacefully at her home in Chiang Mai so before we exit I'm just going to wrap up a little bit more history of Thailand and tie up some loose ends. Lana officially became a part of Siam, not just a vassal kingdom in 1893. So like a couple years after Dara's marriage, which meant that in 1930s when Siam was changed to Thailand and it turned into a constitutional democracy that also has, you know, the, the monarchy still established. They still have, you know, a King Rama the 10th. He's still there. Um, Lana went with it. So, The kingdom of Lana was made just part of modern Thailand. But thankfully, because of Dara, we still have the mausoleums and we still know about that royal family's history and that they were separate and that they did exist. Over the years and through colonization and war, Thailand may have lost some territory here and there, but they were never taken over completely. And I like to think that it had something to do with Dara. She not only saved her family and herself from the clutches of Great Britain, strengthening the political bond between Lana and Siam, but she also bridged the cultural gap between northern and southern Thailand forever, making them stronger for it. Not many people may know her name, but they certainly feel her presence, whether it be amazement at the graceful movement of Thai dancers or joy when smelling a field of chulalong corn roses. She is remembered in the actual experience of visiting modern Thailand, whether we realize
0: it or not.
1: And that's the story of Princess <laughs> Darashmi. Dara
0: I. It's so good. I, I can honestly say this is one of those moments in the podcast where it's like I feel truly blessed that I'm doing it. Because that's a story I never would have heard. Some of these stories, it's like I may have come across it. But, you know, I'm not a studier of, like, Asian history and Asian culture. So when I get those moments of, like, Princess Dara is an important monarch. Yes, she is. And... (laughs) I didn't know she existed. And I think this is the first woman we've done from Thailand. So, in my head, I have like a little quarter where I'm scratching off the map. (laughs) And it's like, and I know she's not the only important woman to ever exist in Thailand. And I hope we come across more. But, the, the deeper we get into this the cooler it is no absolutely because like i was th-
1: i didn't even know that thailand wasn't colonized i just assumed that they had been like so many other
0: countries It's like that wait area. wait a country that hasn't been touched
1: by <laughs> i feel so dumb but i was like legitimately shocked also i kind of low-key love that like king Rama the 10th, who exists now, he's like very controversial because he's definitely had people imprisoned <laughs> and he's kind of a lunatic. Yeah. But I love that the queen of Thailand, his wife, was his bodyguard that he fell in love
0: with. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, also, do you want to know wild fact? Yes, Thailand, Liberia, and the United States are the only three countries that don't use the metric system. <laughs>
1: No wild. So when I say ounces, I mean ounces of liquor.
0: <laughs> Listen guys, not
1: milliliters this, or this whatever cocktail, you use. This
0: grams? Milliliters? No, grams is, milliliters. grams is weight. Milliliters, that's liquid. liquid. Yeah, this this cocktail recipe is for you Thailand. <laughs> But for only Thailand and Thank Liberia, God, I don't have to translate it. <laughs> Everybody else, you do. suck.
1: <laughs> okay, so now we are going to compare all these women in a little segment we like to call them just, "just
0: the two of us"
1: or "many of us,"
0: <laughs> just the millions of us. <laughs> um. Wow. I just the first thing that stuck out to me is that Princess Dara. Uh, um, was fluent in multiple languages. Yeah, and it's because she had this wealthy, rich background where she was trained in all of the courts, and her ancestors were like, "Hey, it's going to be really fucking important that you don't let these white people kill you."
1: Right, because unfortunately, like I know, I definitely see it as like, don't let them take advantage of you. So we're not going to let them take advantage of you. So we're going to teach you multiple languages so you always know what the fuck is going on which a lot of people are not granted the privilege of like i'm not
0: (laughs) i'm not what if i went somewhere else
1: man i got a hundred day streak on duolingo and i fucking lost it well you can get
0: it back you can um there's like a buzzer thing don't let
1: it make you sad i did it did make me sad a little bit but that's okay um so anyways but yeah but it's like a thing where it's, I think we like to see it as like, ooh, that's so cool, but like, for people in Dara's position, it is literally a matter of survival, and for these women who were sterilized, it meant that a part of them didn't survive because they were not multilingual, which is not their fault fault no
0: and it doesn't make you a lesser person if you're not multilingual especially if you're moving into a community like a lot of people when they are immigrating to another place they move into a community that has people that speak similar languages to them or have similar culture so you don't expect when you go to a public hospital that you are going to be completely disrespected when everybody who surrounds you like these women have spent 50 60 70 years and haven't learned english which means they can live their daily lives and not know english (laughs) even at the point of the documentary in 2018 but they can't go to a hospital
1: yeah that's fucked well exactly and it's just this whole matter of people in charge making decisions for other people and unfortunately their children like i was thinking of fucking dr quilligan is kind of like england in dara's story like this looming force that like if the story is like i i mean queen victoria wanted to just take her just adopt dara and be like yeah she's my baby You're now our's now so hello and welcome but it's like just because you are, like, the quote-unquote dominant power right now doesn't mean that you can choose what to do with our children, which is exactly what Quilligan and the fucking dominant, you know, what do you call it? Uh, what is that goddamn word? Eugenicist, yeah. you know, predominant thinking. Just because you're in
0: charge doesn't mean you should be able to do this. And, and like, Princess Dara... I find her so similar to attorney Antonia Hernandez oh, yeah. where Princess Jara was saying, not only am I not going to succumb to the wills of Princess or Queen Victoria, where I'm going to be wearing Victoria's style clothing and have my hair up and do this that and the other but i'm also not to not going to succumb to the wills of this other southern thailand group i'm gonna wear what i want Mm -hmm. i'm gonna have my hair the way i want and Mm -hmm. i'm going to express my culture and i just loved watching this 27 year old lawyer with her big gold hoops Mm -hmm. stumbling over her words like this is my first fucking court case (laughs) i'm on television This is really weird. She even said, like, I was walking out of the courtroom after we lost and I was about to start crying and somebody shook me and was like, don't cry. You have to look strong. Okay. I know this is gauche, but I have
1: to bring up the episode of Sex and the City where the four ladies have a conversation about crying at work. And Charlotte is like, I cried once. And everyone was walking on eggshells around me for the rest of my time there. Yeah. And then you get that fucking scene where, like, Samantha is, like, in the elevator, and she's like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And she breaks down because she has been slut-shamed. Right. In a work environment by a notorious womanizer. Right. And I just think that that is one of the... Tale as old as times. You know what I'm saying? Of like, women are over emotional, so don't listen to them. It's like, these women who have, like, you know, had this happen, they knew exactly what they were doing. You know, they're just trying to go back on their word. Like, they're crazy. (laughs) It's like, no, you literally, like, would you like to try and give birth? Like, I'd like to have a man do anything when he just passes a kidney stone because, like, I've done it as a woman, and that's fucking painful as fuck. And, like, (laughs) I've heard it's worse for men, but it's, like, just don't tell me that I'm being overly emotional for my gender when you're literally taking advantage of a physical
0: state I'm in. Like, I'm in pain. And not only in pain, but, like, during a C-section, you are under, like – Medical, you're under you, you're in surgery, yeah, and like <laughs> you've been given medicine to make you, I cut you open. Yeah, it's like you cannot, you don't let people drive that way, no. you don't let people play video games that way. You're, you're
1: <laughs> video
0: games, no video games under the influence. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot, you cannot expect somebody to make a decision when they are under the influence of pain or medicine or whatever and these women were under multiple things not to mention the stress that they keep they can they can maybe interpret a couple words and they keep hearing die pain surgery baby bad like hurt hurt sign sign you know they're hearing the words they know and are being told very little things
1: Yeah which is kind of the opposite experience that Dara is having where she actually understands every single thing that's going on, which means that she can be like, I'm making my own informed decisions because like, if you're talking shit about me, I fucking know it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. if someone's bringing in news from England, I can translate it. And like, Mm. it is really interesting. The difference that like, what we're saying like language brings to a situation because people can either exploit it or they can underestimate it. I Mm -hmm. think in Dara's case, they underestimated it. And I think in the case of these women, they exploited it, you know? And I, I just felt like there was, even though like Dara's story is mainly like a good one of like, she was really important. We don't talk about her, but like there is also, we cannot not talk about the connection of child loss and grief. Between their two stories. Because she
0: did lose a child. And I think that's important that as a woman, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter what your position in society is, you may succumb to having a child. Mm -hmm. And if you do then you are vulnerable Mm -hmm. to the loss of that child or the loss of the child before you had them Mm. as the women in my story were. Like they were feeling the pain of the children that they had dreamt to be. And that's just as painful. Oh, it absolutely is. I know
1: there is um, a group of women, I don't know, Jesus Christ, I learned this in school, but basically like your birth date in this particular culture is when the mother like goes out under a tree and she dreams of that child's life Mm. and like, that's their birthday because women do and people, you know, dream of like, this is what my life would be like if I had this kid. And like, it's, it's not a throwaway thing. Like, you know, Quilligan would like to believe that it is. I feel like they think, Oh, the child pops up and then it's that it's like, No, like, my mother dreamed of having a house with ten children. Right. (laughs) She wanted ten children. And she lost one. And she lost one. And she ended up having four. And, like, she was super happy with that. She always says, like, you know, I got ten out of, like, my kids' friends. But, like, who are you to say that, like, those children are less valid or, you know, shouldn't exist because you don't think they should? It's, like, it's not like... Oh, I wanted one and I ended up with 10. Like, it's like, no, I wanted children and I ended up with one.
0: Well, and you know, it's uncomfortable, too, because like if people were to ask me, they'd say things like, how many kids do you have? And in my head, I would say, well, I lost two. I have two. That's four. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, you have two. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't live that first half of that story with me. Yeah. And people just, it it's such a journey. Yeah. Well,
1: because I know I didn't, you know, I was fairly young when you were going through all that. And I remember one of the things that you told one of our friends when, you know, she was having trouble having a baby. is like, you know, people want to downplay it. They're like, oh, it's fine. It's It was early, you know. And it's like, no, you can grieve. You can, because it was just like, when you were talking, it was like, As soon as you see that, like, plus sign or whatever it is on the pregnancy test, it's like you're immediately calculating, like, they'll be born around this time. I'll be this age when they have their first birthday. I'll be this age when they graduate high school. I'll be this age when they turn 21. And it's like their whole life is formulated in your head. In an instant. In an instant. And then it can be taken away and and nobody felt that except for you exactly and it's a grief that is so personal and for dara it's like rama the fifth he had 77 children but she had
0: one she had one and that baby was two right not even yeah exactly 18 months maybe two
1: years and like, like a couple like eight months like that was a toddler I kept saying baby but that was a toddler yeah that's somebody uh,
0: that you have you had weaned mm-hmm. you had gotten to the point of like talking to you and eating with you yeah. and like sitting at your table that's terrible exactly
1: like a part of your daily life like not that any child like isn't
0: or whatever. it doesn't but matter like, when you lose a it child doesn't matter it's mm-hmm. horrible
1: but but yeah it's like and I just I feel like they can be similar grief for you know even women that didn't want one and still you know miscarry mis- miscarried or like you or know abort. or abort you know like
0: i'll say terminate to make people happy Terminate, yeah, terminate
1: yeah exactly but it's a thing that a lot of people experience and no matter how they choose to Deal with it. You know, I feel like you have to respect that. Like, even if it was like, yeah, I terminated this pregnancy and it was a hundred percent the right decision, and I'm super stoked about it. Be like, yep, go for it. Like, I had a friend who, (laughs) any day now, right? Any day now, I'll get used to it. Any day, I had a friend who had it. I had an abortion party and it was great. It was like, yes, like because that was how they chose to like be like, yeah, I did it, and like it was fine. Like other people, it's like I did it and I need a little more time to like deal with it and. I just feel like all of these women needed space for how they dealt with motherhood. And I feel like, especially for the women in this court case, it was not really allotted to them because it was literally taken away from them. And they them. were drugged through the public. Yeah. Mm. And I think that there was also, it sucks because a lot of people want to say, like, no, it's for the greater good, da 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 da, but there was love here. Like you were saying, like these couples, they wanted more children. They had more love to give. I think Dara and Chulalongkorn, they had love to give. There was affection there. And and it's really sad what that does to a relationship sometimes. And I think it's also, I don't know, I was just thinking a lot about that and a lot about real fear versus false fear. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of these women, this happened to them because there was a false fear of population overgrowth. And, you know, they're like, we need to get control of the population. And things like doomsday things get into people's brains like weeds. And it is hard to get rid of. And that is a false fear.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's also like, it's the same. I feel like these doctors, like you talked about Dr. Quilligan, he's almost like these people were almost like the colonizers Mm -hmm. it's like you have what you presume to be superior knowledge but do you actually understand the culture of these people because you don't yeah you don't yeah and what you're doing is mistreating them you are medically diagnosing something that is inaccurate yeah exactly because of the this knowledge that you say you have yeah it doesn't exist
1: But I also, I just want to thank, like, take a moment to thank these women for what they did for the greater culture. Because I was thinking about these women who, like, they went through the court case, which is traumatic. We know that, like, a lot of people who have to testify in front of courts and juries have PTSD from it because it's a horrible experience. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I was thinking about the birth control subjects and, like, what they went through just so... You know, I can choose not to have kids. Like it, it's and and then I was thinking about like, Lana culture and how like it is still in some way preserved and just all these things that you can put on a scale of like important, not important, whatever you want to do. But either way, the women in the court case and Dara Rashmi. They we have we have to thank them for what they did for the greater culture, whether it was suffering a lot or, you know, just trying really hard to preserve something because they did do great thing. Like, I don't want to say did great things because these things happened to these sterilized women but they it were attempting to protect
0: the future exactly it's why yes. they signed on to the court case they exactly. said this happened to me and i d-, because many of them had daughters yeah. and they said i don't want this to happen to my daughters yeah. my nieces my cousins my anyone it yeah. shouldn't happen to anyone so they yeah. were both both people groups of people were preserving a future that they yeah. couldn't see and that's powerful oh it's, that's exactly that's exactly it yeah
1: preserving a future oh. That wasn't, yeah, that wasn't exactly clear. Yeah. You ready to toast? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. All right, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening?
0: So very fitting, obviously. I want to toast to everyone whose reproductive rights have been stripped or changed from them in one way or another. Some of you may have really wanted to terminate a pregnancy or to get birth control and were not granted that freedom. Some of you may have been forcibly impregnated. Some of you were sterilized and did not get the baby that you desperately wanted. Some of you were turned down from adoption agencies because you were single or for a variety of other reasons. Many of you may be struggling with getting pregnant or staying pregnant and don't have the money to explore IVF. And I just want to raise a glass to the brave, strong women that you are because whatever your circumstances are, your reproductive rights are your rights. And it fucking sucks that they aren't. Mm. Cheers. So cheers. All
1: right. I am going to toast women who represent more than themselves. Dara never folded into what she was supposed to be or what she was supposed to do as a new resident of Bangkok because she knew that there was more at stake you know, than just like, I don't like wearing that. I don't like wearing my hair that way. She knew that there was an entire culture and an entire language that was set to cease to exist. And she just said, no, that's not going to happen on my watch. And I'm going to cheers her for that. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. All right. Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Mine's super
0: easy. Okay. So, I like buying a cereal that I perceive as healthy when it's not. <laughs> and I found not only typical Raisin Bran, but Raisin Bran with dried bananas and Katie. Oh, that sounds delicious. It's the best cereal i've ever had i need
1: to know that because i've been eating reese's puffs which i'm sure is the worst cereal for you
0: uh it's fine (laughs) (laughs) i feel like it just gets um mushy too quick uh raisin bran with bananas i could Mm. not explain because i love raisin bran the bananas twofold twofold better okay okay that's all that's all i had to say
1: perfect (laughs) tell me what you got Mine is also really simple. So, literally, probably like two months ago, you came to family dinner wearing glasses. And everybody's like, Allie, what's going on? And you're like, oh, they're blue light glasses. They're right here. They're right there. (laughs) You wore them earlier tonight. I know. Because you stare at a screen all day. And I was like, wow. I get headaches a lot when I'm in front of the computer all day. Did you start wearing glasses?
0: I did. I bought blue light glasses. How are they working? So great. Doesn't it change everything? It really
1: does. It is like... Because, all right, not only do I now all of a sudden um, get basically, like, the flu every time I get my period. I get, like, these horrible migraines. The older I get, the
0: worse it is. Let me
1: tell you. Because I literally thought I I have COVID every single month, but then it's just my period. And it's horrible. Right. But anyways, um, so I've been, like, a little more paying attention to my headaches. And I was like, you know what? I think that I do get headaches every, like, when I'm, like, working on the computer a lot. And I saw just a whole rack of them in Target one day. None of them were cute enough for me, so I ordered them off Amazon. That's what I I I did. Pair, (laughs) (laughs) but you can get like a nice cheap pair. Sometimes you can get a couple and uh, yeah just get some blue light glasses because you just put them on when you're on the computer and it really
0: helps it i could not believe how much it changed yeah my friend like when i told her i was like i'm tired of teaching all day on the computer and i just i get off and i just hold my head and then afterwards i'm editing the podcast right i was like computer some more i'm I'm constantly on the computer or i'm posting on instagram Mm -hmm. so i'm on my cell phone and she was like girl what the fuck is wrong with you this is jesse of course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my only friend with sense. <laughs> I was sense. like what the fuck is wrong with you get some blue light glasses and i was like oh i see yeah it i couldn't believe how much it helped and it'll help you go to sleep at night if yep. like if you are somebody who sits in bed with yourself or with your partner and watches tv at night and then struggles to go to bed if you just throw them on while you guys are watching murder she rode and then mm-hmm. take them off and then fall asleep it
1: changes everything yeah where you can take one ibuprofen PM every night, which is what I do.
0: That's called self-medicating. Um, I self-medicate <laughs> with blue light glasses, I'm, please.
1: <laughs> I didn't. I also didn't realize this was a thing until a famous climber that I follow on Instagram said it. Um they said that they've ex- been experiencing a like increased insomnia during the pandemic because of all the anxiety my mom every does, fucking day. My mom
0: can't sleep. She hasn't slept in months. Yeah,
1: I know. That's why I had to start self-medicating yeah. with ibuprofen PM. I, and it's literally I know I know in my head that at this point cuz I used to, I started taking it, you know, when I would get my period every month cuz I was like I am having hot flashes at night. I have a migraine. (laughs) Like, it's not okay, you know. Um,
0: Are we old now, do you think? Yes. Just Um, making sure. (laughs) So I started taking
1: it then, but then, like, I wouldn't, like, and then I became, I think I'm also kind of dependent on it now, which is unfortunate, but, like, (laughs) literally just the stress of, like, living in this fucking pandemic every day, Right. I really, like, it's a mental thing where, like, if I take it, then, like, in my head, I'm like, okay, you'll go to sleep for sure
0: because you took the pill. And then if you didn't, you're like the what well, I didn't take it and that's why. Yes. Mm-hmm. I got
1: super drunk one night and I was like, "Well, I don't need it cuz I'm drunk." And then I couldn't go to sleep even though I was wasted. I couldn't even pass out. It was really upsetting. Yeah. Um <laughs> so all the doctors out so, there, diagnose diagnosis. Us. diagnose <laughs> us please because now <laughs> I'm I, I, I told Casey, I was like, I'm worried that if I stop taking, I, I only take, I don't even take two ibuprofen PM <laughs> at night. I take one. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have withdrawal in Casey as a f- former heroin addict was like can you shut the fuck up i hate you <laughs> do you even
0: understand withdrawal <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> he's like having shivers in prison oh my gosh and i'm like i'm just like you <laughs> he's like, he's like but can you play chess Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> have you worked out in prison obviously oh my gosh um okay everybody okay thanks for listening find us everywhere <laughs> we're gonna do our secret drunk patron episode in a minute yes. thank you for everyone on patron we love you the most but we love everyone else too <laughs> patron is our secret favorite child
1: it's true it's true
0: <laughs> we, they get posts of personal things I, I relationship
1: <laughs> advice we have no right to give I posted, <laughs> I
0: posted the video of me giving a eulogy at my grandmother's funeral what <laughs> the what the fuck is so wrong with me? It's so inappropriate. It's really a eulogy, though. But It's inappropriate. It's a little bit. <laughs> no, I love it. We love you. Okay, we love you. Right okay. Us
1: everywhere, rate us and review us. That would be the most help. You could win a
0: book if you, you do it played. by yesterday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but most of all, I want you to never ever forget that well-behaved women have a gift wrapping table. Oh, they do. They Bye. <laughs>